0: Thank you, Pastor. It's a delight to be here. It's so exciting to see what God's doing. And I know He wants to do more. It's always great to be here at Canaan Baptist Church. hard to believe that we're looking now at two years. has been two years just with COVID and everything. It's great to be back. I know your pastor was gracious to be uh, uh, one of the first meetings we had back after that first lockdown. And it's certainly wonderful to see what God's doing here, seeing a full house. And I know God has something for us. And we certainly are going to encourage you just to be praying. I know already there has been a lot of prayer, and I'm certainly encouraged by it. If you think, by the way, six days is a long meeting, I remember about 15 years ago, maybe your pastor will remember this, we got word out of the country of Burma that up in the Chin Hills, there was a revival going on. After time, some of the word came out. There were a couple of young men in the 1980s that uh, snuck out of Burma, went into India, And there they got uh, educated in uh, a Baptist uh, school there and came back across the line. Now they were Baptists in Burma, but you may not know this, Uh, But the Northern Baptist Convention went liberal, and that's who had influence there in Burma as a result of Adoniram Judson, who was a Baptist, and uh, they went liberal, theologically liberal, which means they lost their faith. And so these guys went across the border, went to uh, a a very uh, independent Baptist seminary that was just on fire. They brought the fire back, and they got kicked out of their Baptist churches, because they were liberal, kicked out. And uh, that was in the 1980s. And uh, for several decades, they uh, just started independent Baptist churches, and then Uh, I think it was in the early 2000s they decided you know what we think we've been praying for revival let's go up in the hills and they went up in the chin hills and thousand I think or so people met them they had a great prayer meeting came down they couldn't preach from the churches but they got um, they preached outside the churches and I think thousands of people gathered and revival broke out in the chin hills and when we got word of it what happened was every morning, the men would people would get up at five o'clock. They go to prayer meeting, I think from six to seven or whatever. Then they'd go to work, work all day. Then they go to revival meetings. Now don't miss this. By the time we had had words, they had, had revival meetings. Don't miss this. For 300 plus nights in a row. And God was saving uh, thousands of people there. So if you think six days is long, just think about the Chin Hills, 300 plus nights. I think they made a year. Uh, If you can imagine that uh, every night, revival meeting with thousands of people attending, God working remarkable ways. It certainly is an exciting story. But anyway, back to our meeting here. And I know the Lord wants to do something. And I will say this, there's something I can be sure about this week. You say, what's that? It's going to be a battle. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, etc. And I just want you to understand, get ready for a battle. Okay, so get ready on the way to work for your tire to go flat. You with me on that? Or maybe the way home, okay? And Satan's going to fight you. He doesn't want you here. So let me encourage you to realize that uh, if God wants you here, he'll make a way. And uh, let's see what God's going to do. And I hope, uh, we'll just, uh, I hope you'll be faithful to the meeting. And let's see what God will do in your heart and in mine. I want to start with a message that is foundational for the week. Our theme, of course, is rest. Rest. Our worldviews rest a whole lot different than the Bible does. As I mentioned a moment ago when I was in the men's, uh, or the men's prayer, I uh, talked about a little bit about rest. Hebrews 3 and 4, I'm not going to right now deal with that. But uh, chapter number four uh, gives us a picture of rest. And the picture of rest is a picture of battle. Battle. You say, how in the world can battle be rest? Well, it's like this. If you know you're going to win, you can be at rest. (laughs) I may be in battle, but the victory's certain. And that's the children of Israel. Every day they went to war, and here's what they said. Every day they went to war, here's what they said. I wonder what God's going to do today. And I will tell you, friend, that's the way God wants the Christian life to be. Hey, it may be a battle, but I wonder what God's going to do today. Okay, now, uh, let me just say a couple of things about the meeting. My wife is going to be leading children's meetings. Some of you know that from the past, but I want you to, uh, those of you that have younger children, four years old, I think it is, up to, I'm not sure what grade, but at least fourth grade, maybe beyond that. And we're going to uh, have those every night. She does a great job, and I know it'll be a wonderful time. So uh, make sure you you, uh, keep that in mind with bringing your children or others. And then, of course, we'll be in the auditorium here asking God to work in our hearts. So I want to begin, since we're talking about rest, I want us to begin this morning and I want to deal with a subject matter that does not seem like it corresponds with rest. But I want you to go to Romans chapter number 13. Romans chapter number 13, but actually in a moment you're going to see this is actually a key truth when it comes to rest. I want to preach a message on the power of light. The power of light. Now I uh, Remember, when I was here two years ago in the summertime, God put me on a journey. Some of you men, I shared that with you, the co-infections journey. And one of the things I began to recognize in that co-infections, and I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. But this message was birthed out of that. I may have reached, preached parts of it in that Wednesday night message. I can't remember everything I preached, but uh, we certainly walked through this passage. But I want us to go and visit again in a little more focused fashion. And we'll get right there, talking about the power of light. Now, at the risk of redundancy, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I probably mentioned this several years ago, but I want to re-mention it. And I wanted to kind of kind of give you a little bit of foundation from where we're going. When I was growing up, I uh, had only one pastor. It was my father. It's interesting, when you're growing up, that's your, if your dad's a pastor, that's, what, that's who your pastor is. Okay, And I'm glad he was my pastor, but my dad... Would, uh, Sunday night was just his folksy, I don't know, hometown thing. He he preached well all the time, but Sunday night, we always look forward to Sunday night. He kind of deal with issues and deal with biblical perspectives on things. And and I remember as I was growing up from time to time, he mentioned uh, a guy by the name of J.D. Unwin. And and he also mentioned the work that he had produced called Sex and Culture. And I remember he mentioned it. I don't remember a lot about it. I was young. I didn't remember assimilating everything about it. But I remember I remember being in, intrigued by some of the conversations comments he made. And several years ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going f- to do a little research on that guy. So I googled him up, and, and he's not very well known. In fact, probably most of you have never heard of him. But uh, I did a little research on him, found out he was a British anthropologist who died in his 30s. Died an untimely death. But before he died, he produced that particular work I just mentioned, and it uh, is what they call a snooze fest. I, I've talked to a guy who, uh, uh, one guy, a pastor downloaded, he said, I read about a fifth of it. He said, I barely could understand what the guy was saying. And I just talked to a guy who's read it multiple times, who's was an academic brain, and he said, yeah, the guy's hard to read, okay? So it's an unusual title, but it was a study. And in the study, he was studying this. The premise, I believe, as he came to it was this. If you loo- loosen sexual morality a culture, culture would flourish. But when he studied that, came to it, he came to the exact opposite conclusion, that if you loosen sexual morality, culture disintegrates. Now, J.D. Unwin was not a believer. As I understand, he was either an agnostic or an atheist. He had no Bible foundation. He was just a, a sociologist, an anthropologist, studying, okay, these things. And so he studied 86 cultures, and he wanted to find out in these 86 cultures, if they loosened sexual morality, what happened? And he found every single time they loosened sexual morality, within three generations, the society ceased or the culture ceased to exist. He said, in most cases, it was militarily overthrown. He said, in some cases, it was just amalgamated in by a stronger culture. He said, now culture would flourish if there was sexual morality, it would flourish. And uh, he pointed out there was a delayed reaction. Now, uh, he said often uh, if if the culture began to pursue uh, sexual immorality and loosen cultural morality, he said it would be about a a, a, a full generation before the culture would begin to feel its effects because the older people in that culture would kind of put the lid on it and it looks like they're having their cake and eating it too. But he pointed out, very interesting, that the very first thing that happens in order for a culture to decline is this when they no longer require prenuptial chastity, I'm using his words, prenuptial chastity. Now, I love the Victorian English. I really do. You say, what in the world's prenuptial chastity? Okay, it's pre-marriage. Uh, there not be any, any kind of sexual activity. The Bible would call that fornication. It would be uh, a, a young p- couple keeping themselves pure, marrying, be faithful to the marriage partner. And that would, uh, that would be when culture requires that it Uh, flourishes. But when culture no longer requires that, according to Unwin, it begins the unraveling of that culture. Isn't that interesting? So uh, now remember that uh, we all know that moral failure has been occurring in every culture. In fact, I remember reading the book 1776 by David McCullough. Anybody ever read that secular biography? 1776. It's very interesting that when the cult- Continental Army was uh, uh, occupying a certain town, I can't think it was New York, but I could be wrong about that, uh, uh, the historian David McCullough pointed out that many of the soldiers were visiting brothels and, and uh, prostitutes and it was a very tragic thing. Now we, So we know that moral failure has been happening in all, all the time, but the difference was in that time it was not accepted by culture at large. Even my mother, who graduated in early 1940s, was known as the only virgin left in her senior class, or maybe her and one other. And so we know that this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time, but in the 1940s, culture did not accept that. So when did culture stop requiring prenuptial chastity? And I would say it was probably in the 1960s or 1970s. That was the beginning. Of the uh, of the no longer culture requiring prenuptial chastity. Now, let me just simply say, I think we would call it the they call it the sexual revolution, or I've heard it this: the free love of the 60s. I want everybody to understand something: the free love of the 60s was not free, and it was not love. You know what I call it? The expensive lust. That's what I call it. And I'm going to tell you something, all you young people out here, the free love of the 60s wasn't free, it's come with an unbelievable price tag and your generation's paying it because you've bought into a lie, you have bought into a lie. And so when you no longer require prenuptial chastity and there begins to be, uh, a culture begins to allow that kind of garbage... um, that there's three generations and the culture is gone. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm just telling you what Unwin believes. If Unwin is right, there are young people in this room who will no longer, by the time you're an old man, will no longer live in the United States of America. It will be overrun by a foreign military power. Or it will be amalgamated by a stronger culture if Unwin is right. So the first generation, it looks like the generation is getting away with it. They still have cultural. They still have financial flourishing. Culture continues to flourish. It looks like everything's fine. What's the big deal? But they said that he points out Unwin points out in the second generation there are three things that show that culture is being destroyed. Would you like to know what this unsaved, atheistic, agnostic um, anthropologist says are the three indications in the second generation that it is falling apart? Because you're not going to like it. You're not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> Number one, now please understand, I'm just giving you what Unwin says, monogamy declines. Do you know what monogamy is? Do you know what the word mono means? Anybody know? Just shout it out. I know it's Sunday morning. What does it mean? One, one. Monogamy is when a man is faithful to his wife. In other words, monogamy would be a couple gets married, their faith, they, they are, they are Uh, sexually pure before they get married. They marry, they're faithful to each other till death parts them. That's monogamy. Now there's two things that contribute to monogamy not occurring. Number one, adultery. And number two, divorce. Okay, I'm not trying to make a statement theologically on divorce. I'm just talking to you about Unwin right now. Okay, so uh, I want to ask you a question. Do you think monogamy is declining in 2022? Yeah, well, it uh, sounds like Unwin's right on that one. Number two. He says that deism declines. Now, when he's talking about deism, he's not talking about Thomas Jefferson deism. He's talking about belief in God or religion. It was recently, the survey that is taken on a regular basis, that that whoever takes the survey found, for the first time in the history of taking that survey, the nons, you know who the nons are? People who claim no religious affiliation. The nons now outnumber those who do claim religious affiliation for the first time. So I can say religion is declining. (laughs) Number three, this one's going to really get you. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just telling you what Unwin, if you don't like it, just blame Unwin for the moment. Okay, but here it is. Number three, rationalism declines. Now, rationalism simply means this. It's the reign of truth. Rationalism, we're not talking about capital R rationalism. We're not for all you philosophers out there. We're talking about little r rationalism. In other words, it's the reign of truth. It's when what really matters is true. It doesn't really matter how you feel. What really matters is what's true. He, Unwin points out that in the third generation, rationalism declines, so don't miss this. It no longer matters what's true. What matters in the second generation is how you feel. Now, I want, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just telling on you what tell, Unwin's telling you right now. In other words, if it's true you have certain chromosomes and yet you feel like you have a different set of chromosomes and you give in to your feelings, Unwin says that means the culture is declining. That's what Unwin says. You say you don't like it, go just mess with Unwin. Okay, he's been gone for decades now, almost 100 years. Now the point is, that's stunning. Now friends, why is it why is it, according? Of course, Unwin's not a theologian. Why is it theologically? I remember hearing that study, and I begin to think to myself, why is it that when you loosen sexual morality and you begin to have moral failure, why is it that culture is destroyed? Why? I've come to several conclusions, and of course. Uh, Two years ago, I presented the selfishness part of it, which is the core issue, but there's a second issue that I'd like to deal with and it's the second co-infection and that is, don't miss this, why? Because often moral failure brings a second issue and that is the issue of deception. Deception. It's like the kid who came to me and said, Brother Van Gelder, and he said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but on Monday night, he said, I didn't sleep a wink. He said, all night long, all I did was look at YouTube videos. So I want to ask you a question. I should have asked him what he was looking at. I'd probably be pretty naive to believe they were all above board. But I want to ask you, do you think that morning at breakfast with his mom and dad, he said, oh, by the way, mom and dad, I was watching YouTube videos all all night long. Do you think that's what he did? (laughs) No, absolutely not. You see, here's the point. When people get involved in sexual sin, you know what happens? They often become deceptive. Particularly in the Christian realm, they're going to act like they didn't do it. I want you to point out what happens when you become deceptive. You know what deception does? It's certainly a form of selfishness. But you know what deception does? It absolutely destroys relationship. When I mentioned the word intimacy, do you know what most people in this room think of? They think of it in the way the world thinks of it in the physical realm. But do you know that physical intimacy is honestly the lowest form of intimacy? You know what intimacy really is? You know what spiritual intimacy is? I'm talking about it in a marriage. It's when you and your partner talk spiritually on a deep level. You know what emotional intimacy is? See, what happens with deception, you get secrets in your life, particularly in marriage. It hurts marriage. See, most marriages may have physical intimacy, but that's the only level of intimacy they have. They don't have emotional and they don't have, are not very much emotional or don't have very much spiritual intimacy. And the reason is, is because there's secrets. There's secrets. There is deception. There's darkness. The man's looking at filth. He doesn't usually come to his wife and say, oh, by the way, I was looking at pornography last night. Usually doesn't happen a man's flirting with the secretary, he usually doesn't come home and tell his wife, oh, by the way, I was flirting with the secretary. When a man has an affair, he doesn't come back and tell his wife he had an affair. When a woman cheats on her husband, she doesn't go and say, oh, by the way, I cheated on you last night. That's generally not what happens. You know what happens? They act like they didn't. You know what that's called? Deception. And I want to tell you something. The moral mess this country is in, one of the reasons it's destroying us, it's caused people to be liars. Now, if you've ever been to a foreign country, particularly one that has very little Christian base, you will find that the culture is completely thrives on lying. I don't know how many cultures I've been in where you talk to missionaries and the thing they have to grapple with all the time is you won't get anything done with a government official unless you bribe them. At least in this point in the United States, that's not where we are. The only reason we're not there is because of generations before where we had a biblical context and a biblical ethic. It still, of course, has some effect left, and so it's, it's certainly diminishing with every year. See, deception's one of the problems. Listen, you get a culture that gets into moral impurity and sexual sin, and I will show you a culture that becomes very good at wearing masks, very good at deception, very good at acting like there's something they're not. And that's one of the great problems, I believe, why Unwin, because Unwin wasn't a theologian. He was just observing cultural, societal data. Eighty-six cultures were destroyed in 100 years. And do you know how many exceptions they were? None. That's stunning. If that's true, we only got about 50 years, maybe 40 years left, depending on when the beginning started. It's really a stunning point. And yet, I'm telling you, isn't it amazing? Nobody addresses this, do they? You have any politician get up and say, hey, listen, all this, all this uh, feeling, touchy-feely stuff, gender-bending stuff, you know, that doesn't care about the truth is a sign the culture is unraveling. Now, don't get me wrong, I have compassion on people that are struggling with this. There's a lot of factors, and dysfunction is part of it. we got all kinds of mess in this culture. I get that. And I try to have compassion on people who are caught up in the mess. Please understand it. But as a preacher, we've got to realize we got a problem. <laughs> if we don't deal with this, friends, one day the ship's going to be too far down. You're not going to be able to plug the holes. I hope we're not past uh, past the time. I believe uh, it's still rescuable. But it's not going to rescue as long as we let we get our morality from culture and not get it from the Word of God. So let's go to a passage of scripture that's quite stunning. I want you to begin in verse number 11 of Romans 13. This is kind of an introduction here that will take us. I'm not sure how far we'll go this morning. We'll keep an eye on the clock. And by the way, I just want you to know, everybody, the first time I was here, I didn't realize there was a clock up in the balcony. You say, preacher, I remember you preached long Well, I just want everybody to know, I see the clock in the balcony. Now, it doesn't really mean anything, but nonetheless, I see the clock in the balcony. Okay, I just want you to know that. So uh, when it starts flashing back and forth and and, uh, begins to have a countdown for the uh, uh, pulpit to drop, then, of course, we'll stop. Okay, but anyway, you didn't realize there was a secret trap door up here. Okay, Pastor Ingram put one in. Okay, he doesn't use it on himself, but he does on visiting preachers. Okay, okay, here we go. But uh, look what it says, and that knowing the time that it is now high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we believed. Now, can I give you a little bit of theology here for a moment? Now, many of you may know this, but you may not. Did you know when the Bible talks about salvation, there are three tenses? It is right for you if you're saved to say, I have been saved. It is also right for you, hopefully, to be able to say, I am being saved. And it is right for you to say, I will be saved. Okay, there's three tenses. Now, the past tense means I've been saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, I can't go to hell. Listen, friend, if you're saved on your way to heaven, you can't go to hell. Isn't that good news? It's impossible. You've been saved. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You'll never face the penalty of sin. If you're saved, you will never be punished. You will be corrected, but you will not be punished. You can't be punished. You say, why? Because Jesus already took it. And you can't be punished for what has already been punished, uh, taken care of. Jesus took your punishment. Okay, so you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, one day you're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Amen. Now, I don't know about you. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Well, now, I'm not going to have to struggle with this sin issue anymore. My flesh isn't going to be there trying to drag me into sin. Okay, we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. But I want to tell you, every believer in this room ought to be able to say, I am being delivered from the power of sin. That's from the moment you got saved to the moment you die and faith becomes sight. We call it the Christian life. It's when God wants to deliver you from the power of sin. Now, you say, preacher, I'm saved, but I'm not finding a lot of deliverance from the power of sin. Well, I want to tell you, friend, it's not because Jesus can't do it. It's because you are not looking to him to be for him to do it. Okay, it's like this. You'll never get saved from the penalty of sin until you look to Jesus to save you. So you'll never get saved from the power of sin until you look for Jesus to deliver you from sin's power. But I'm telling you, friends, sin's not your boss anymore, and you do not have to let him call the shots in your life. He'll try, by the way, but you don't have to listen to him. Listen, everybody out how many out here have a former boss? A guy you used to work for you don't work for anymore. Can I see your hands, please? Okay, if you have a former boss, and he were to call you up this afternoon and start bossing you around, what would you do? You say, hey, bud, lay off, man. You're not my boss. Next time sin comes on your door and say, hey, man, go out and get drunk. Or, hey, man, go out and look at that pornography. Or, hey, man, yell at your wife. Or, hey, man, whatever. You know what you say? Get lost, man. You're not my boss anymore. <laughs> See, why? You're being, Jesus wants to deliver you from the power of sin. you got a new boss. And I want to tell you something, friend, your, your boss is Jesus Christ. He not only tells you what to do, he enables you to do it. <laughs> See, so. I believe what we're talking about here it says knowing the time that it is now high time to wake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed this is clearly not talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin because that's what happened when we believed so it's either talking about salvation from the presence of sin or it's talking about salvation from the power of sin or maybe both. But you know what, my friend, I'm just going to say, I think because of the next following verses, it's talking about, hey, now is our deliverance, that's the word salvation, from the power of sin nearer than when we believe. In other words, friends, God is trying to tell you, listen, let, right now you can be delivered from the power of sin. You don't have to live in bondage to sin any longer. <laughs> I think it could be saying that. Some might say it's talking about the presence of sin, but the principle, I believe, is still there for the power of sin. So notice what the next verse says, verse number 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but three times in a row it said, let us. Let us. Now, in the Bible... There are two ways God commands us or God encourages us to do what he wants us to do. The first one is a command. You remember the verse, love not the world. That's a command. There are many commands in the Bible. In the Bible, it's called the imperative mood. I'm not trying to be too technical. I'm just saying you can look in the Bible and grammatically, if you look at the original, you can see it's always reflected in the English, but you can see, well, that's a command. But there's another way God commands us in the Bible and that's what we call a horatory subjunctive and that is often translated this way, let us. It has the idea like this. It's the idea of God putting his arm around us and say, let's do this. And he says it three times in a row. Three times in a row he uses this horatory subjunctive where he says, let's do this. And here's what he's saying to every one of us today. Let's get rid of the works of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. And let's walk honestly as in the day. And you know, be honest with you, I think they're all one action. They're one action. You say, how? Okay. The works of darkness, I think we know what those are. You know what, I'm going to just say this, friends. Many times when people are in the works of darkness, they seem powerful. When someone's hooked on alcohol, it seems powerful, doesn't it? Like, I can't kick it. When somebody's hooked on pornography, it seems powerful, doesn't it? I, I'm not only talking to men in this room who maybe within the last 24 hours have looked at filth, it just seems to beckon you. It's like you can't say no. Seems powerful, doesn't it? The works of darkness seem really, really powerful. So I remember hearing the testimony of a preacher who, who uh, left his wife and had an affair and, of course, had to leave the ministry and And he said uh, to someone who repeated, I thought was very interesting, he said, it seemed like I I was powerless to resist. Now, in a moment you'll understand that it was, there was a way out. But you know, that sometimes doesn't it seem like the works of darkness are so powerful, like I can't resist it. So the works of darkness can sometimes seem extremely powerful. But I want to tell you something. That's a lie. It's a lie. Satan wants you to think they're powerful. He wants you to think you can't get him out. He wants you to think you're stuck till you die. That's what he wants you to think. Now, let's use the analogy between darkness and light. Many times when we think of darkness and light, do you know what we think of? Equivalence. They are opposites, aren't they? Darkness and light, they're opposites, but they're not equivalents. You say, what do you mean? Darkness is wimpy, <laughs> and light is powerful. You know how powerful light is? Do you know in this auditorium right now? It'd be impossible while these lights are on and while the sun's coming through those windows, it'd be impossible for darkness to invade this room. It's like this. If this was nighttime, 12 midnight, and the lights were off, and I came into this auditorium, I could invade darkness with light. You ever heard of a flash light? I could turn it on, there'd be a beam of light through the auditorium. But you know, right now, if I had a little mechanism up here and I turned it on, called a flash dark. Say, there is no such thing as a flash dark. You're exactly right. I can't turn on a mechanism and have a beam of darkness, could I? You know why? Because light's too powerful. And I want to tell you something right now. What God's trying to tell everybody in this room, your works of darkness are no match for the light. Here's what you need to do. Turn on the light! You put on the armor of light. You say, preacher, how do you get rid of the works of darkness? How do you put on this armor of light? Yeah, I get that, I see that. Darkness seems so powerful when you're in it, but it's really not. Light's powerful, darkness always yields to light. And light does not yield to darkness. You cannot invade light with darkness. While the light's shining, you cannot do it. The only way to do it is to turn off the light. But light in and of itself is powerful. So you will preacher, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, look at the next one. That's why I think these, these, these three go together, try, uh, put off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, and then what does it say? Let us walk. Here is the key word. Honestly. It's in the day. Have you ever noticed that we're always shocked when a crime is committed in broad daylight? Have you ever heard of that? Why? Because everybody can see it happen. Have you ever noticed that there aren't windows in bars? There aren't windows in brothels? Sin loves darkness. Why? Because the daytime exposes that there's something about sinning in broad daylight that unnerves most people. Do you know what happens when you're in the daytime? Everything can be seen. You know how it is. Maybe some of you teenagers are going to, um, to school and it was some crazy dress-up day, you know, and you're, you usually don't stop at my McDonald's in your crazy dress-up unless you're an extrovert and just like all the attention. You know why? Because everybody can see. I mean, there's no hiding what you got on. Like, man, what's going on? That's crazy. Okay, you know what I'm, uh, the, that's what the day does. It exposes everything. There's no, it's just out there. And the Bible says, let us walk honestly as in the day, daylight you got to be honest, that's what what I'm wearing, I'm wearing. I mean, you you can be in a 60s or 70s attire, but in the daytime you can't hide it. Everybody sees the bell bottoms, they see the plaid pants, you know what I'm saying? They see that it's out, out of style. So that's what the daytime does, it exposes. Friends, the whole point of this message is to come to this. The light, the key to light is honesty. Now, if it's telling us to walk honestly as in the day, it's pointing out there are certain things we could talk about. For instance, the word of God is light. Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. But he also said this, ye are the light of the world. Everyone of you out there, you're the light of the world. So God gives us those three sources of light. But here he's clearly giving us an exhortation. I want you to walk honestly as in the day. Now the stunning part about that verse, and we see it up here on both screens, it gives us three duets of darkness. Now I'm going to say this. What God is telling us is this. You need to appropriately get honest if you're involved in any of these three categories. That you'll never get out of these things until you get appropriately honest. You say, preacher, what do you mean appropriately honest? Well, I will say this. God will show you who you need to get honest with. And there may be a whole lot more people than you realize. But the thing is, when you're ready, you say, I'm done with the darkness. You're willing to be honest to anybody. Okay, notice the first one. It says, not in rioting and drunkenness. The word rioting there is talking about parades they would have back in those days in honor of the goddess or the god of wine, a guy by the name of Bacchus. And they would have these drunken riots that would go through the city. And of course, uh, the, it'd be raucous and et cetera. And that's what rioting is talking about, rioting and drunkenness. It obviously has the idea of substance abuse. So the first area, if you want to get victory over, that you've got to be appropriately honest to the right people is if you're involved in substance abuse. So that would be abusive prescription drugs, illegal drugs. It would be alcohol. It would be any kind of substance that controls you. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful in me, but I will not be brought into the power of any. So it's anything that you can't control, it's controlling you. That's a substance. I believe tobacco would even be concluded here. Now I say tobacco, as my dad used to say, it's not the worst sin in the world. Cigarette smoking is not the worst sin in the world. My dad used to put it this way, cigarette smoking won't send you to hell, it'll just make you smell like you've been there. Okay, but anyway. The point is, if you can't control tobacco or alcohol or whatever, in other words, if you're getting involved in any of those things, the only way God says you're going to get out of it is to get honest. You know, a first person I would go to is I'd get to your pastor, get to men in the church here and say, hey, listen, I got a problem. I need help. But you know what most people do that struggle with those things? I had a dear friend of mine whose dad passed away untimely, I think in his 60s or early 70s and and uh, he said the thing that stunned him before his dad died, he found out either after his dad died or right before his dad died, that all his growing up, his dad was hooked on cigarettes. But he was a deacon in the church and he acted like he wasn't. And you know what? Like I said, it may not be the worst sin in the world, but I'll tell you the greater sin was his acting like he's something he wasn't. That was the greater sin. And that was such a disappointment and disillusion to this young man. Realized my dad lived the lie. It's like years ago I mentioned to you men that my dad had these men's prayer breakfasts at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning. And kind of like what you do on Sunday morning. And they have breakfast afterwards. and, And they were getting ready to go over to an area restaurant. And a man was putting on his coat. And he leaned over and a pack of cigarettes fell out of his pocket. And he said to the men who were a little astonished. He said, oh, somebody framed me. You know, I'm thinking, wouldn't it have been better if he looked at those men and say, you know, men, could you pray for me? I really, as a Christian, need to get victory over this. This this shouldn't rule me. I need Jesus to rule me. I don't need this stuff. It's going to hurt my health anyway. Don't you think that would have been a better answer? But here's what the truth is. One of the problems I want you to understand with uh, darkness and deception is, number one, you cover You cover sin. He that covereth his sin, we saw this in Sunday school, shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. See, darkness causes you to cover your sin and act like, you know what darkness does? It causes you to delete histories on your computer. It causes you to act like you're not looking at filth when you are. It causes you to flirt with people and then hide the fact that you did. It causes people to have affairs and try to cover it up. That's what it does. Darkness always covers sin. It acts, makes you act like you did, didn't do it when you actually did. Another aspect of darkness, and these all overlap, is the issue of masks. And I know you've discussed that a lot here. But mask is acting like you're somebody you're really not. And a lot of people trying to throw people off, they put on masks. And many men who are involved in moral failure will put their hands up like this, won't let their wife get close, won't let their kids get close. Because they don't want them to find out who they really are. In fact, some of the men who've worked with men coming out of this, and some of you know this, that when a man finally gets right about looking at filth or having moral failure in his life, he needs to gather his children and in an age-appropriate manner tell them, the reason you could not get close to me was not your fault, it was mine. Because many young people blame themselves for the fact they couldn't get close to their parents when it was actually not their fault at all. That dad or that mom wouldn't let them get close. Why? Why? because they didn't want to get found out wearing masks not only that how about this one blame many times a man will blame his wife for the fact he's looking at filth listen sir you look at filth don't blame your wife you made a sinful choice and until you own up to that you're never going to get out of that junk you can shack it up, but it's your, it's your issue, it's not anybody else's. You can't blame your wife. I don't care how bad she is. It's, you know, listen, there's not a sin on planet Earth that you and I can commit and blame somebody else for it. Can't do it. You can fantasize, think dirty thoughts, but I'm telling you, friends, you can't blame your wife for it. You just can't do it. And blame, you know what it is? Blame is darkness. Blame is not taking responsibility. Blame is trying to act like I'm really not, it's not the problem. It's not my fault. See, that's where darkness comes from. The first area you've got to be honest with is obviously substance abuse. The se- these are, this is just the Bible. I'm not preaching my opinion. Do you, you get that? Some of you say, preacher, I'm not coming back to hear you preach. Well, I'm telling you, friends, it's like old Oliver Green said, I'm going to shove one do- go- d- dose of gospel down your throat while I've got you here. I thought that was what all the old radio preacher used to say. But anyway, uh, I'm just preaching the Word of God. In fact, it was like uh, old Oliver Green, the, uh, the same radio preacher said, um, he said, I just dialed the number. Uh, you, you, if, it's your, if the phone's ringing, answer it. Okay, but anyway, so there it is. Not in writing and drunkenness. Number two, it says not in chambering and wantonness. The second arena that God is telling us that we need to be honest about is sexual sins. You will never get out of your filth until you get honest with the right people. There are dear men in this room probably need to make a beeline to your pastor and say, pastor, I don't care what it takes. I need to get out. I'm done with the filth. I'm done with looking at the junk. I'm done with it. And I'm just going to simply say, friends, of the many churches I've been in, this is one of the churches that is probably most well equipped to help you. They will help you. If you want out of moral filth, there are men here that will do everything they can to help you. But they can't help you if they don't know you want help. And the truth is, it's just saying, hey, listen, I got an issue. I got to deal with this. Listen, you're, you're into a secret relationship. You're flirting, man, it's heading toward an affair. And you say, Preacher, I want out, you want out, you better get honest with the appropriate people. <laughs> See, that's what the Bible is telling us here. You've got to walk honestly in these three arenas. There's got to be an honesty, not in chambering and wantonness. You say, what in the world is chambering and wantonness? I love those old English King James words. They are Those two words are so blunt, it would be a, a very difficult for me to give an appropriate word study uh, in this mixed audience this morning. That's how blunt they are. It's talking about all the junk, all the mess, all the moral filth, all the sexual garbage out there today are in those two words. Very good words. And God is simply saying, any moral arena problem you've got, you've got to, honesty is the key. You've got to, the first step is, you've got to get honest with the appropriate people. And say, I need help. And I will tell you something, friends. I, I, the thing I love about Kingdom Baptist Church and I know you're on a journey, we all are, none of us have arrived, but thank the Lord for the journey you're on, is and I will tell you, I've been so burdened about churches. We're not museums, we're hospitals. Amen. Do you know what a hospital does? It wants to take patients and turn them into doctors. Amen. And there are, the young, there are some men and ladies in this church that used to be patients, but now they're becoming doctors. Amen. See, that's what God does. But uh, chambering and wantonness, there's got to be an honest to be about moral issues. And number three, not in strife and envying, anger. Been in youth ministry for 38 years. I think it's fair to say I've preached to a couple 300,000 kids over the years, teenagers. Number one problem myself and my team deals with when we're in Christian schools, number one problem is bitterness. The number one problem of bitterness is don't miss this. Angry fathers. Angry fathers. If I asked the men in this room who had angry fathers to stand, uh, I would be surprised if it wasn't over 50%. I want to tell you, you know, know, I'm just going to tell you right now. Since I've done this for 38 years, I am dealing, I am constantly dealing with the damage of men who have an anger problem. And I want to tell you something, friends, it's damaging. One time getting angry at your kids is one time too many. And if you've ever gotten angry at your kids, you need to go back and get it right. That's the next best thing. Just go back and get it right. And God is simply saying, you want out of anger, you're going to have to get honest. I, I can't remember where I was preaching, but I had a, a female, I believe she was, a, 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 she was in the army, a female a psychologist who worked in the army. And she said, Brother Van Gelder, and she said, I'm a Christian. But she said, I work with families in the army. And he said, in the army, we're taught that if a man's an angry man, that he'll never stop being an angry man. We just try to contain it. He said, she said, to be honest with you, the army never expects a man to recover from being an angry man. They just try to manage it so there's not that much damage. It's all you know, just trying to keep it, contain it. She said, honestly, I have only place I have ever seen a man transformed is in the church. But even that is rare. You know what happens with angry men? They're always blaming their wives or their kids. It's never their fault. I will say that it's far easier, I believe, to get a man who's in sexual addictions, who's looking at filth, it's far easier to get him to victory than a man who's angry. Now I'm not minimizing looking at filth and I'm not minimizing sexual addictions, but I will tell you, I've wondered if anger is not a worse addiction in how many people it hurts. And yet I'm telling you today, anger is one of those sins that's, well, everybody struggles. Well, I'm going to tell you some friends, God's big enough. You don't have to be angry. God can deliver you. Amen. And if you've got an anger problem, stop blaming your wife, stop blaming your kids and stop blaming whatever else is going on. And I mean, get to people and say, I don't care what it takes. I got to get victory. It's not anybody else's fault. It's my fault. It's like this man. I want to tell you, you've got an anger problem. I don't care if you're married to somebody else. I don't care if you have different kids. I don't care if you're, if you were married to an angel, you know, the problem is you'd still be anger, angry, angry. Because the problem is not your wife and it's not your kids, it's you. And until you fess up to that, you're not getting victory. I'm just simply saying, God is saying, then these three arenas, you've got to take full responsibility, you've got to get honest, and you've got to say, I don't care what it takes, I want out. And there's not a lot, there are men that get out, but I'm telling you, friends, it's not a whole lot. And I will tell you, teenager, you've got an angry problem, don't marry until you deal with it. And become a different man. Because anger has no place in relationship. And uh, yet it is something that God very clearly said, not in strife and envy. Now, I grew up in a pastor's home, and probably to be honest with you, I, um, I probably grew up somewhat naive. But I remember uh, my dad, I am told, had an anger problem. The reason I have a hard time believing it is because I, I maybe saw a few vestiges of it, but very little saw it, and it never was an issue to me. I thought thought of him as one of the most kindest men on planet Earth. I really did. But the point I would make is that one time he didn't have an angry father. He had an angry father. A man who was frustrated with life. Was not a spiritual man. I hope he's in heaven, but only God knows. But my uh, older brother, who's seven years older than I, that says one day my dad came to the supper table and, my brother came, thought he had washed up, you know how seven-year-olds are, thought he had washed up, cleaned up. My dad was kind of more on the cleanest side of things, and yet he probably said my fingernail's were probably all dirty, and he said I probably still had sweat and dirt in my face, but he said I thought I'd done a good job cleaning up. He said, I sat down at the table, and he said, Dad exploded. This is hard for me to even tell the story because this is not the man I knew. He's of course, it, my brother was crestfallen, and my dad left the table and said, my brother, older brother said, Dad was gone for a long time. So when he came back, he had tears in his eyes. He said, Wayne, would you forgive me? I was wrong. And I don't care what it takes. I got to have victory. And by the grace of God, I'm going to have victory. My older brother will tell you, my dad was different after that. God began to deliver him from his anger. I'm telling you, we live in a very angry day. I, uh, I just encourage you, you know, let me just say this. And I, I've said this before here, but I'm just going to say it again because I think it needs to be said. I grew up, like I say, naive. In other words, I, I, you know, I just, I, I, I guess as I grew up and began to get in ministry, I began to find out things that shocked me. Do you know this is going to shock you? But maybe some of you, I don't know, but it certainly shocked me. Do you know that, that husbands and wives fight? in front of their kids? I'll be honest with you, when I heard that, I was stunned. (laughs) My parents never fought in front of me. (laughs) I'm not sure they ever fought. I don't know, maybe they did, but I didn't know about it. One of the most selfish, unkind things you can do is fight in front of your kids. I'm just telling you right now. And kids, if your parents have fought in front of you, hopefully they've already asked forgiveness. But if they haven't, I'm going to tell you something right now. You don't have to do that. God's bigger than that. You don't have to replicate that. Hey. God's grace is sufficient. And I will tell you, if they've asked your forgiveness, forgive them and realize they're on a journey. And by the grace of God, they're going to help you avoid some of the pitfalls they fell into. But I'm telling you, Mom, Dad, if you've ever fought in front of your kids, you need to sit down and ask forgiveness. I'm just telling you, it's, it's one of the most cruel. Listen, I put it this way. Take your junk behind closed doors <laughs> and deal with it there. Don't drag your kids into something that they have no, no, have no need to see. I will tell you I've heard of it both ways the wife putting down the husband in front of the kids husband putting down the wife she's the reason there's problems he's the reason there's problems your dad this 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 your mom this 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 thinking what you gotta be kidding me now if you've got an anger problem I'm telling you right now make a beeline to the leadership in this church I don't care what it takes I'm going to be honest with you. You know what would happen to this? It would be really likely this morning as a result of a message that somebody come to the pastor and say, you know what, I do have a trouble. You know, I've got an addiction in this area. Maybe, uh, maybe I struggle every once in a while going to the bar, getting drunk. Or, you know, maybe I'm struggling with tobacco. That would be far more likely to happen after this message. Or somebody to come and say, you know, I'm struggling with the Internet. I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't look at. That would be far more likely to happen than somebody coming to the pastor and say, i got an anger problem. That would be the least likely because angry people are proud, they're cocky, they blame everyone else, and they do not take responsibility. And I'm just telling you right now, whenever a man comes to the pastor, and it happened last week, hallelujah, glory to God, it was a miracle. The Red Sea parting was not a greater miracle. I'm telling you, friends, whenever a man comes to the pastor and says, I got an anger problem, I want to deal with it, I'm saying, hallelujah, glory to God, revival's already showed up. Because men are far, far more likely to deal with lust, far more likely to deal with uh, some addiction than they are to deal with their anger. Because anger becomes so innate that they blame everyone. In fact, all you that are going to do marriage counseling, if a guy's got an anger problem, don't deal with the wife's issues. Because you know, she's not perfect and certainly she may provoke him, but his anger is no excuse. I don't care what she does. See, that's the idea you got to deal with this issue. And I'm banging you angry man. You know, you'll never have revival until you realize I've got a sin problem. I'm going to deal with it. I don't care what it takes. But notice what the passage says. Let us walk honestly. Honestly. Now I'm going to conclude with this. I told the story partially to you men. But I want to kind of angle it in a little different. And uh, this is a very personal story. It's not easy to share, and I'll be done. Three years ago, my son-in-law, who was not my son-in-law at the time, came to me and said, I'd like to marry your daughter. He actually had his eye on her for seven years at that point. I mean, we had visited his church and revival meeting, and I don't know what happened, but something happened. I mean, he... uh, and he he really have never wavered. It was all about my oldest daughter. He was just on it. As a result of an issue in his life, and I appreciate his honesty, I had to turn him down. And honestly, for a few months, he didn't go back to that issue. It was a a viewing issue, which he's very open about, viewing inappropriate materials on the internet. He did not go back to that issue, but he spiraled in trying to have victory. didn't go back to it, but struggled. Long story, he got into um, some accountability, a daily accountability program, and he began to see victory he had never seen. In fact, I remember him sitting down with me and explaining, of course, by that point, I had said to him, it's off, It just is off. And so I gave him no hope. And the reason is because I knew that he had to change for God, not for my daughter. He had to become a different man because God wanted him to be a different man. So anyway, uh, about a year later he came to me and I was just asking him how he was doing on his purity journey and he had committed to honesty. That's why I'm giving you a story. And he told me something that blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. As a result of being in this daily accountability, he said, Dr. Jim... And he was, uh, at this point, just giving glory to God. He said, I've had four months now where I've been tempted to think lustful thoughts, but I can honestly say I have not given in one time. You say, preacher, that's impossible. Well, you're exactly right, but with, all th- with him, all things are possible. <laughs> every day he was reporting on his thought life. Can you imagine every day having to report men to somebody, as I mentioned in Sunday school, what's your thought life like? Every day, if he had a failure in thinking lustful thoughts, he had to tell appropriately tell his accountability group. Every 24 hours. Every 24 hours. As a result of that, and some other truth that he had learned, he got into sustained victory, and I'll be honest with you, I was stunned by it. At that point, there was still no future regarding my daughter. But uh, in the fall of 2020, right after I was here in the summertime, uh, we had him travel with us, and as a result of COVID, we, lost, we were out in California. We lost several meetings, as you can understand, out there in California. We lost several meetings, and we flew back to the Midwest and had a couple pastors. All God orchestrated this all and said, hey, if you, if you get a week open, come to our place. So we were out in Ohio. We were doing a tent meeting because of the regulations in the area at the time. And, and uh, one night, I, I said to my son-in-law, Ryan, I said, Ryan, would you be willing to give your testimony about uh, your failure and your recovery? He said, Absolutely. No hesitation. I'll never forget that night when he got up and he told people how when he was uh, just a boy, a 12-year-old boy, I believe it was, he was helping a man clean out his garage when he came, over, came across a stack of you-know-what. He said, never seen anything like that before. Instead of running to his dad, he kept it secret, and that was the downfall. It became a periodic area of failure in his life. It's a story that I believe, unfortunately... By the way, friend, you got a stack in your room And your kids see that junk, you're going to answer to God. God says there's going to be offenses come, but woe be to man for whom the offense cometh. You know what that's talking about? Little children. And you mark me, when you stand before God, you're going to answer for that stack of filth that some little kid came across. You're going to answer to God for that junk. And I want to tell you, don't be responsible for some kid falling because of your your, your issue. I'm trying to be as strong as Jesus was. Well, he had told his story that night. I'll never forget that night. He told his story, told the recovery, told what God was doing in his life. And while he was giving that testimony, I don't know how to explain this, friends. God marched through the tent door. I'll never forget getting up to preach. I sensed liberally like I don't often feel, but I felt it that night. I preached on that Romans 13 selfishness deal, preached through the passage, gave an invitation. You could have heard a pin drop. Only one person responded was the youth pastor. He came forward sobbing. And uh, I sent my son-in-law, who of course was not my son-in-law at the time. I sent him in to deal with that. And finally the pastor and myself and uh, Ryan, my son in law, met together and, and Ryan began to tell the pastor what, you know, the steps that he needed to help this. And I sat there with my mouth wide open. I said, Here's a kid in his 20s and he knows more than most, most people. I was I sitting was there amazed. And I will tell you, ever since that time, if he was here tonight, today, he would come and be willing, more, be willing to tell you a story. In fact, he wants to start a purity ministry when God leads him into full-time evangelism and wants to tell a story. He's unashamed to tell a story. And that, I don't want you to miss this. That's the secret. Do you know what happens when men become honest about their issue? They're never worried about anybody finding out. You say, why? Because everybody knows. Some of you know about a pastor I've been working with. I can't go into a lot of details. But just last week, he disclosed to his congregation a battle he's had for 23 years in pornography. And you know what he told me after he disclosed? He said, well, it's like a burden off my back. He said, everybody knows. No more secrets. You know what, my friend? Those of you that are carrying the secrecy burden, no wonder you have headaches. I'm not saying you have, if you have headaches, you're in sin. I have headaches all the time. But they don't become because I'm hiding sin. No wonder you got pressure. No wonder you got issues in your life because you're not at rest. This week's all about rest, but I will tell you what, while you're hiding sin, you're not going to be at rest. <laughs> the only way to be at rest is the power of light. The power of light. You know what the power of light is? Being appropriate, but saying, I'm going to get honest about this stuff. I want out. I and I will tell you, like I mentioned, the church, the church is the place you can get honest about it. Like I said, church is where you ought to be able to hurt out loud. This is the place, friends. This is the place of recovery. And I, I, I almost would do it here this morning, but I, I'm not. But there are many men in this room who could stand to their feet right now and say, yep, yeah, I'm honest. Not a person in this church who comes on a regular basis doesn't know my story. Because I'm no longer defined by my past failure. I'm defo- but defined by my present victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's what it's all about, friend. But you'll never do it in darkness. It's the power of light. Can I ask every head bow please and every eye close?